Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Hit me one time. Hit me twice. Go! Ah! Oh! <laughs> That's rather nice. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 187, Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And Happy New Year to you all. Happy 2023. Welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you're a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you're a regular returning listener, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast again in 2023. And if you are a brand new listener to this podcast, then all I'll say, actually a regular return listener too, actually, start 2023 as you mean to go on by listening to a, shall we say, better than average film history podcast hosted by some random British woman. But basically, no matter how you found this podcast, no matter how you decided to start listening to this podcast, I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. And this is the first episode of 2023. This is also the second episode of animation season 2023, following the previous episode on The Nightmare Before Christmas, which came out just before Christmas, coincidentally. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to say a huge thank you to everyone who's supported this podcast through 2022. It was a genuinely incredible year for me and for this podcast. And when I say support... I don't just mean financial support. I mean just by listening to a podcast because when you listen to an independent podcast, you are supporting that podcast. And every listen really genuinely makes such a difference. So thank you for listening to this. And if you did, for listening to the previous episodes that I did at the end of last year. So I'm talking about The Muppet Christmas Carol and also The Nightmare Before Christmas too. I'm just, as always, so overwhelmed by the support that I get for this podcast. And I want to continue to keep bringing you amazing episodes. And trust me when I say 
There are some amazing animated movies coming this animation season. I can't tell you what they are yet. I will tell you what the next one is at the end of this episode. And you're going to want to hear what it is because it is one of the best animated movies ever made. Maybe. But yeah, that'll be at the end. But I'm just going to jump straight into Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, because this is a film that you probably don't know is full of many firsts. And it's got such an amazing history and legacy to this movie. It wasn't just one of the first animated features to combine traditional and computer animation. It was also one of the first to be produced with remote artists. It was Robin Williams' first animated role and the first movie to be screened at the UN General Assembly, which was a huge deal for this production. So let's just jump straight into the trailer for Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. It's raining like magic. Deep in the heart of the forest, there is a magical world where wondrous creatures play the day away. Red light. Red light again. And where an unusual girl named Krista dreamt of faraway places. Hey, where are you going? Until the day Krista ignored the warnings of her friends. Krista, stop! And flew where no one had flown before. There, she made a huge discovery. <laughs> Look out! You shrank me? Yeah. Catches on quick, doesn't it? Are you really a human? I'm Zach. I'm Krista. This weird creature is a human. Don't you think you're a little old to believe in human tails? Humans don't have tails. They have big, big bottoms that they wear with bad shorts. Now, Zack is rocking and rolling with a reptile. If I'm gonna eat somebody, it might as well be you. Blasting off with the Beetle Boys. Hanging <laughs> ten on a falling leaf. <laughs> and swinging around with a bat who's totally batty. With Zack came other humans. You see Zack anywhere? No. We probably cut out early. Who accidentally released an evil force named Hexus. There goes the neighborhood. Now, to get back to his world, Zack must help Krista find the courage. We've got nowhere else to go. And the magical power to save her world. Well, all right, Gummy. We're going to war. Let's go! Hey, 20th Century Fox invites you to witness the wonder, the music, and the adventure of a place worlds away from anything you've ever seen. Fern Gully. Fern Gully is a rainforest that is home to a race of fairies who have never seen humans and believe they only exist in stories. Curious, when she sees smoke from Mount Warning, a fairy named Krista travels beyond Fern Gully and discovers a group of humans is destroying the rainforest. Krista discovers a human named Zack, who is helping destroy the rainforest and accidentally shrinks him. After discovering the beauty of Ferngully, Zack and Krista learn that the fairies and Ferngully are in mortal danger. The humans have accidentally freed Hexus, an evil, oil-like creature, who has taken over the Leveller, a logging machine. He begins his evil scheme to destroy Ferngully 
once and for all. Let's read through the cast of this movie. We have Samantha Mathis as Krista, Jonathan Ward as Zach, Tim Curry as Hexus, Christian Slater as Pips, Robin Williams as Batty Coda, Grace Zabriskie as Madjunoon, Jeffrey Blake as Ralph, Robert Pastorelli as Tony, Cheech Marin as Stump, Tommy Chong as Root, and Tony Logue as Lou. Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest has a screenplay by Jim Cox, was based on Fern Gully by Diana Young, and was directed by Bill Croyer. And so our story for how Fern Gully came to be starts not in the rainforests, but in the Australian coastal surfing town of Byron Bay. Byron Bay, 480 miles from Sydney, 103 miles from Brisbane, and it's a popular tourist destination for scenery, wildlife, surfing and backpackers. Living in Byron Bay in the late 1970s were Wayne and Diana Young. Diana Young would make bedtime stories for their children, inspired by the subtropical woodland around their home. Stories about a tribe of fairies living in the rainforest alongside kookaburra, platypus and other native creatures and plants. Now, when you think of rainforests, you probably think of South America, the majestic Amazon, or the Congo rainforest in Africa. You might even think of the sprawling rainforests of Cambodia, Thailand and Vietnam. But the Australasian continent's rainforests are actually the third largest in the world after the Amazon and Congo. Diana Young would eventually write the stories down that she read for her children and her book Fern Gully would be published in 1991 a year before the movie's release. But despite thinking the idea of magical fairies and a strong environmental message would be ideal for a family movie, it would take a decade to bring the movie to the screen, and even then, it would be an almost constant battle. The truth was, in the late 70s and early 80s, the environment wasn't really, of course, close to Hollywood's heart. It wasn't until high-profile celebrities like Sting and Madonna started to voice their opinions publicly on environmental issues in the late 80s, that all of a sudden supporting environmental rights started to, well, become cool, as facetious as that sounds. It took Tom Cruise promoting tree planting on Earth Day in 1990 for Wayne Young to realise that if the biggest movie star on the planet was openly supporting environmental causes, this was his opportunity to try and sell an animated project based on his wife's stories. And he had an inn in Hollywood as well. Four years earlier, he had produced the smash hit Crocodile Dundee. And if you're unsure how much of a hit Crocodile Dundee was, it was the second highest grossing film in the US in 1986, after aforementioned Tom Cruise's smash hit Top Gun, and gave Paramount the two highest grossing movies of the year with Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee. It surpassed Mad Max 2 as the highest grossing Australian film worldwide. Crocodile Dundee made $328 million in 1986. That's how much of a hit that movie was. So here was the producer of Crocodile Dundee with an animated movie project on the current celebrity hot topic of reducing pollution, saving the rainforests. And he arrived in LA with his idea to pitch to several animation studios. At the time, he had Disney well in his sights. He felt it was time to educate the public and bring the crisis of the rainforest to the big screen after Captain Planet and the Planeteers, the TV show, tried to make environmental awareness cool almost two years earlier. I was a huge fan of Captain Planet and the Planeteers, by the way. 
So he had Disney firmly in his sights, but this was before Disney's renaissance truly hit the big time with The Little Mermaid in 1989. And as that movie hadn't been released at that point, no one was willing to take a punt on an unknown story and no studio wanted to take on an outside project. So basically, he thought that was that. But it wasn't, because now the story shifts to that of Bill Croyer. His career in animation started at a small commercial studio in 1975, and by 1977, he was working under the legendary Nine Old Men at Disney Studios. And like previous episode Disney alumni Tim Burton, Croyer also worked on The Fox and the Hound at Disney. Croyer would leave Disney and work with director Steven Lisberger on Animalympics and then on Tron, the latter on production storyboards and computer image choreography. He went on to found Croyer Films with his wife Susan in 1986 to combine computer animation and hand-drawn animation. They produced a short film called Technological Threat, which was nominated for an Academy Award in 1988 and preserved by the Academy Film Archive in 2008. Croyer Films would be Disney-quality animation services and they started to employ ex-Disney staff to work on short films and commercials. They even went on to work for Disney animating the titles for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, as well as a film for Epcot. And this is where the two stories merge, as while Young was looking for an animation studio and Disney refused to work with him, they did happen to tell him of another animation studio in Burbank. They weren't doing features, but they were Disney quality. Young met with Bill Croyer, and with Croyer Films only having 17 members of staff, a feature film was far beyond the realms of possibility. But with Young came investment and a budget $20 million. And after a few beers together, it was decided that Croyer Films were going to tackle a full-length animated feature and they were going to do the Fern Gully project. They started creating storyboards and realised this was going to be more than your typical Disney princess movie. This was about connection to the natural world and the message of preserving that world. It became a mission for this tiny team to create something truly special. The production team travelled to Australia for seven weeks in early 1990, just before filming started, in order to accurately portray the Australian rainforests in their work. In order for the artists to see the subjects of their drawings in person, producer Peter Feynman also flew them to Lamington National Park, which is close to the actual Mount Warning. And in this movie, no one is bothering with an Australian accent at all. So Mount Warning's presence would suggest that Fern Gully is supposed to be on the border of New South Wales and Queensland. But this was still a team of only 17 people. So the first task was to find new premises, rent new premises, stock that premises with furniture and equipment and hire some new people. When production began in February 1990, the crew had no full script, no storyboards and no studio premises. Jim Cox was hired to write the screenplay after writing the first two treatments for Disney's Beauty and the Beast. That's episode 141, by the way. And Cox would also take Wayne Young on a tour of Disney's Animation Wing, pointing out the best animators to try and coax over to Croyer Films to work on the Fern Gully project. Meanwhile, the production set up studio at a former brewery in San Fernando Valley, but finding the space had proven difficult due to someone at Disney who wasn't happy that these Australians were not only making their own animated movie, but that they were poaching Disney staff to work for them. And I've spoken a lot on this podcast on previous Animation Season episodes, so let's welcome back to Verbal Diorama and to Animation Season, 
Mr. Jeffrey Katzenberg. Katzenberg wasn't just mildly annoyed with this upstart Croyer films. He was pretty livid, actually. And this was only the beginning of Ferngully's very own real-life Hexus. Katzenberg tried to shut the production down by gazumping them on rental studio space. As soon as Croyer would find a studio, Disney would offer more money to the owners. And then when Croyer Films finally found the former brewery, Disney tried to buy it. When that failed, Katzenberg decided to make an impromptu visit to the Croyer Brewery to inspect the competition. He ended up seeing absolutely nothing as the material was covered up in time, but Katzenberg clearly saw some form of competition with Ferngully. But that wasn't the only reason he was angry with Ferngully. And I'm going to come back to the big reason why Jeffrey Katzenberg did not like this production. In this brewery, a small team of 40 animators worked on something they were all deeply committed to. In essence, Ferngully was like a homemade movie experience. Friendships were formed during the production process, and this wasn't an antiquated filmmaking experience. Ferngully was cutting edge. It included 40,000 frames of computer-generated animation and included one of the first sequences to be digitally painted. According to reports, Ferngully's production time was cut in half because of the digital work done on the movie. The rest and the vast majority of the movie, including the storyboarding, layout, animation, cleanup, hand-painted and hand-inked cells, were painstakingly created by hand using actual physical artwork. It was shot on film with hand-painted backgrounds throughout. Digital ink and paint was, at that time, a new technology, and very few studios outside of Disney were actually using it. The voice actors agreed to work on the movie for scale wages because they all agreed with its environmental message. And this was something Robin Williams would do again on Aladdin. But I'm going to be coming back to Robin Williams, so let's put a pin in him. At the time, Samantha Mathis and Christian Slater were dating. They had both just starred in Pump Up the Volume. And they were both hip young things at the time, especially Christian Slater, who was, as I said, coming up Pump Up the Volume and Heathers and then in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And he was pretty much my number one crush at the start of the 90s. So congratulations to Christian Slater. You're still hot. But the person that we really need to talk about, putting aside Robin Williams for the time being, is Tim Curry. And Tim Curry, he liked that it wasn't a big studio production. And he wanted to bring as much campy and scary as he could get away with to the character of Hexus. And he wasn't the only one upping the horror value. The filmmakers actually went out of their way to entice Kathy Zielinski. Kathy Zielinski, she was the supervising animator on Ursula for Disney's The Little Mermaid, and they wanted her specifically to work on the character of Hexus. Zielinski was the second woman ever to supervise an animation project at Disney, and she was responsible for some of their darker, more macabre characters. She worked on Ursula, as I said. She also worked on Frollo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and on Aladdin as well as the character of Jafar, as both a beggar and the stake. The producers of Ferngully actually ended up asking Zielinski to tone down the scary imagery for Hexus. Tim Curry's performance, which is very ritzy, very seductive and a little bit grungy, it highlights Hexus's very campy nature, is positively bursting with energy the entire time. And in order to make the song Toxic Love more appropriate for a family film, numerous verses had to be removed or rewritten because they included too many innuendos 
about how pollution makes hexes feel. Let's just say it's verging on slightly erotic in those original lyrics. Those original lyrics, they are available online. You can completely understand why they toned that down. And then there's Robin Williams. We have to talk about Robin Williams. Can't not talk about Robin Williams. And honestly, any opportunity to talk about Robin Williams. He had just received an Oscar nomination for his performance in Good Morning Vietnam. And he would frequently turn up unannounced to open mic nights in Los Angeles comic clubs. And this was where screenwriter Jim Cox frequently watched him perform. He had Robin Williams in mind when he wrote Batty Coda. Batty Coda is a fruit bat who quotes popular culture and makes his way back to the forest despite suffering from some sort of brain damage after escaping from an animal testing laboratory. And getting Robin Williams was a huge coup for Fern Gully. And Bill Croyer was so impressed by Williams' 14 hours of improvised lines for the part that Batty's original screen time of eight minutes was tripled for the final cut. But this is where the story goes back to Jeffrey Katzenberg's issues with the Ferngully production. Because by the time Disney contacted Williams about providing the voiceover work for the genie in Aladdin, Robin Williams had already committed to playing Batty Coda in Ferngully. Jeffrey Katzenberg tried to force Williams off of Ferngully as he didn't want the actor performing voice roles in another project the same year that Aladdin was coming out. Robin Williams point blank refused. It was his voice. He would use it for whatever work he wanted to do. He thought it was a really important project and he really wanted to do both. Now, when I'm talking about Jeffrey Katzenberg, obviously Bill Croyer was clearly no angel in this scenario. He had accidentally poached some of Disney's best animators, so Jeffrey Katzenberg did have every right to be annoyed. Jeffrey Katzenberg is very well known in the industry for being a little bit particular, shall we say. And if you think about it, an actor performing a similar role for two studios in the same year is not unheard of. And with hindsight, Aladdin would prove a hell of a lot more popular than Ferngully. And both movies are made substantially better by Robin Williams' performance. So 30 years later, maybe we've just got to say all's well that ends well, I guess. It's interesting to note as well that when we're talking about casting, for the Spanish dub, comedian Angel Garrow would earn himself a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records for voicing all 32 characters in Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest for this Spanish dub. Every single character is voiced by one man. So technically, Fern Gully is also a movie that has a world record associated with it. And one of the things that I love the most about this movie is it does kind of harken back to traditional hand-drawn cell animation. And while the character designs for Krista and Zack were pretty standard, there's nothing really special about the character designs for me personally. Where Fern Gully really excels is in its backdrops, all of which are hand-drawn paintings. They are complemented by CG birds and other animals, as well as traditional cell art. Things like fairy night trails were backlit frame by frame. The entire film actually comprised of 32,000 pounds. That's 16 tons of art. Four tons of which was simply just paint. And you can make the argument that for all of its environmental message, technically was all animated on paper. Paper which comes from trees similar to the ones in the movie that are being felled. It is a little ironic but if you are going to do traditional animation, then you are going to use paper for that animation. And to be honest, one of the reasons why I love to do animation season is to highlight movies like this. 
it is a very traditionally animated movie, but it is also trying to push the boundaries a little bit, trying to include CG creatures, even if it is just birds in the background. It is trying to do something a little bit different. And arguably, yes, Aladdin came out the same year. And Aladdin did pretty much everything better than this movie. But there's a really strong message in this movie that has always stuck with me. But this movie is 30 years old now. And I feel like no one's really talking about Fern Gully. And the whole point of Fern Gully was when it finished was for people to talk about it and for people to actually try and do something about it. 30 years later, we've not actually done all that much, in all honesty. And really one of the lasting legacies of this movie should have been deeply rooted in its environmental message. Let's move on, though, to... I haven't got a good segue for this. Let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. And if you're wondering what the obligatory Keanu reference is, well, let me tell you, it's where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. One of the things that I love most about this movie is the absolutely incredible dated language in this movie from Zach. But one of the things I will say is the incredibly dated language of this movie is actually how it's given me the obligatory Keanu reference because Zach actually says the one thing that Keanu would no doubt say to me when he met me and that is that I am one bodacious babe. And the reason why I know Keanu would say that is 30-ish years ago, Keanu was saying a very similar thing in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. So that is it. The fact that Zach says, you are one bodacious babe, is what Keanu would say to me. So that's it. That's the obligatory Keanu reference. And yes, they are often as terrible as that. Sometimes I actually put a decent amount of thought in them. But that's it for today. Look, I've had Christmas off. I've had New Year's off. And it's going to take me a while to get back up to the normal verbal diorama speed. So you're just going to have to bear with me on that one. Let's segue, though, from being a bodacious babe to the music, which makes no sense at all, but just go with me on this. Because this is a movie that has an Elton John song. You wouldn't necessarily associate this movie with Elton John. But he closes the movie with an original song called Some of the World. And that was his first involvement in an animated feature because this movie came out a couple of years before The Lion King came out. This was also Alan Silvestri's first animated score. Jimmy Buffett wrote If I'm Gonna Eat Somebody, It Might As Well Be You. And let's be honest, the music in this movie is not very memorable apart from Toxic Love. Everyone who's anyone knows the song Toxic Love. Because it is the best song in this entire movie. And it's sung by the legendary Tim Curry. So when it came to marketing Ferngully, there wasn't a big push from 20th Century Fox because Fox didn't own the movie. Ferngully was actually owned and financed by an Australian company called FIA Films. Fox was merely just the distributor. So when the distributor doesn't own the movie, they don't really bother to get into sales and commercials because they're not making as much money from it. Bill Croyer would do some interviews and some promotion, but they never actually had a big studio premiere of Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. The Croyers would end up funding their own premiere for their own crew. The movie's poster, though, was produced on recycled paper in keeping with the environmental concept, and merchandising was packaged sustainably. 
Fern Gully was released in the US on the 10th of April 1992 and also in Australia on the 17th of September 1992. On Earth Day of the same year, it was screened in the UN General Assembly, making it the first ever movie to do so. The entire crew was present for that screening and it was a tremendous honour for the film and also for the filmmakers as well. When it did open in the US, it opened at fifth in the box office against Sleepwalkers and number one, Basic Instinct and number two, White Men Can't Jump at three and Beethoven at four. It was re-released for its 30th anniversary in August 2022, where each original negative was transferred into 4K high dynamic range by Shout Factory. And on its $24 million final budget, it would go on to gross $24.7 million in the US and $8 million internationally for a total gross of $32.7 million. Portions of the film's gross were donated to Greenpeace, the Rainforest Foundation Fund, and the Sierra Club, as well as a special fund benefiting environmental projects worldwide that was administered by the Smithsonian Institute, although exact totals have never been disclosed. On the 26th of August 1992, 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment released Fern Gully on VHS and Laserdisc four months after its theatrical debut. Sales were robust. By 1998, 5 million copies had been sold, including 125,000 in its native Australia. So while this was a movie that didn't do great theatrically, it did really, really well on home video, which a lot of these movies from the 80s and 90s actually ended up making a killing in the home video market, just like Fern Gully did. Critically, it's not particularly well-loved, let's say 67% on Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert would praise its humour and sweetness. Janet Maslin called it sanctimonious. According to Wayne Young, its biggest critic initially, Mr Jeffrey Katzenberg, called the producers to say he'd seen the film and that he loved it. But since Katzenberg has refused to comment on any reports of his behaviour towards the movie's creation, then who knows really for sure. And I really can't talk about Fern Gully without talking about a movie that is on everyone's lips at the moment, and that is Avatar. So you might know of Avatar, I guess. 2009 James Cameron film, which currently has a sequel. It's just broken the billion dollar barrier at the box office as of recording this episode. And Avatar has in the past been accused of stealing Fern Gully's themes and plot by some reviewers. But others have refuted the claim, saying Fern Gully is just one of many movies that Avatar is comparable to. Epic is another movie with similar themes about being shrunken and taken to a woodland kingdom. Epic was a 20th Century Fox animation and Blue Sky Studios collaboration, and Epic would dominate the box office compared to Fern Gully. Epic would go on to make $250 million worldwide. There's also Once Upon a Forest as well, which was a Hanna-Barbera production. Again, distributed by Fox. Fox loves movies about environmental issues. And Once Upon a Forest was a bit of a box office bomb. While it wasn't up for any major awards, Fern Gully was up for an Annie Award at the 20th Annual Annie Awards for Best Animated Feature, alongside BB's Kids and Beauty and the Beast. No surprise who it lost out to. And there is a sequel to this movie. It's called Fern Gully 2, The Magical Rescue. This time produced by Wild Brain Productions, distributed by 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment. None of the actors from the first movie reprised their roles and it was released direct-to-video in 1998. And while Fern Gully The Last Rainforest was distributed by Fox, 
Fern Gully is not and probably never will be available on Disney+. Plus. The worldwide rights are now owned by Shout Studios in a multi-year deal, including digital, VOD, broadcast, theatrical and home entertainment. So you will probably never be able to see Fern Gully on Disney+, Plus, but you can find it on a little subsidiary Amazon channel, which you have to pay for, called Shout Factory. That is where I watch the movie through Amazon Prime Video. It is only $2.99 a month for it, but to be honest, Third Girl is the best thing in their whole catalogue. So take that as you wish to take it. Let's move over to social media thoughts. So I like to find out what people think of the movies that I cover, and I like to ask the patrons, and I also like to ask all over social media. So we're going to start with the patrons, and we're going to start with Laurel. And Laurel says, this is one of the first movies I remember watching. Must credit it for my love of nature. Tim Curry forever. With a little green heart emoji. And Laurel, along with her husband Derek, she hosts The Midnight Myth. It is a fantastic podcast all about history, philosophy and mythology and how those topics kind of bubble up into our modern pop culture and modern stories. It is genuinely one of my favourite podcasts. I love listening to The Midnight Myth. So I'll pop some information in the show notes for The Midnight Myth. If you like what I do, then I guarantee you will love what they do over at The Midnight Myth. So make sure you have a listen to The Midnight Myth. We have perennial commenter Andy says, Great, now I've got the batty rap stuck in my head. Thanks, M. Winky Smiley. I don't know what you mean, Andy. Yo, the name is Batty. The logic is erratic. Potato in a jacket. Toys in the attic. I'm a huge fan of Andy's podcast, Geek Salad. So you should also make sure you listen to Geek Salad. They are your one-stop shop for everything geeky and nerdy, whether it's movies, music, TV, games, whatever, wherever you can find it at Geek Salad. I'll put some information in the show notes for Geek Salad as well. We also have a Patreon comment from Simon who says, simply, I love Batty Coda. And Simon also has a podcast too. He's the co-host of the Exton Moss Experiment, as well as the Tonic Screwdriver and Oral Intercourse. Basically, this is a guy committed to providing excellent podcasts, as well as genuinely being the very first patron of Verbal Diorama. So if you like older British TV shows, or gin, actually, for that matter, you can't go wrong with any of his podcasts. I'll put information on the show notes for the Exton Moss experiment. And the final patron comment comes from a brand new patron. And the patron, I'm going to introduce him a bit later, but that patron is Brett. And Brett says, a classic animated feature that was made most memorable by Tim Curry's amazing performance. Also, what a year for Robin Williams when it came to voice performances. The unfortunate thing about it, though, is it's not a movie I ever go back to. And to be honest, Brett, I think a lot of people would prefer to go back to Aladdin than this movie. And it's a real shame because Fern Gully actually kind of deserves to be seen a little bit more than it is. But little plug also for Brett's podcast. He is from a podcast called Dissect That Film. And it basically does exactly what it says on the tin. They dissect the good, the bad, the ugly. They review movies every week. They do movie retrospectives, new releases and TV show discussions. Put information in the show notes for Dissect That Film. Moving over to Twitter. We're going to start with at Kate McKinnon AUS, who says, I remember seeing this at the cinema and everyone was so excited for it due to being an Australian-American production. 
I also recall it mentioned in school and the topics of logging and pollution touched on. This was probably my first real introduction to taking care of the planet. At it takes two underscore pod said, I love it. We did an episode comparing it to Pocahontas, Dances with Wolves and Avatar, and it's still my favourite of the four movies. I also like the environmental campaigns they did around it, though there is valid criticism of the paper usage for traditional animation. Moving over to Instagram, at DiabolicalPod says, I absolutely loved it when I was a kid. There's some great songs in there, as I recall, particularly the bad guy's big number. Our friendly SparPod said, It must be said how important this movie is. Talking about climate change before it was cool for an audience of mostly kids and their parents. Very glad I got introduced to this movie at an early age. And moving over to Facebook, we have Mark, who said, Loved this growing up and always thought it was drastically overlooked. Some incredible animation, especially Hexus. Obvious comparison to Avatar, but only one has a rapping bat. And Hayden says, Have a good new year and hope most would understand this since it's about the environment. And as always, a huge thank you to everyone, to the patrons and to Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Not many comments on Fern Gully, but to be honest, this is a movie that I don't think many people have actually seen. So... I'm just grateful that some people have seen it and have been able to give a comment on it. So I'm just so grateful to you all. Thank you so much for your comments on Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. And in many ways, Fern Gully broke the mould for family animation. On the surface, it's an innocent story about fairies, forest animals saving their home. It's sweet, it's fantastical, and it all ends happily ever after. But is it really appropriate for kids? Let's look at the evidence. There's a subplot that's not really examined about animal experimentation and laughed off as Batty just being Batty. Magilene sacrifices herself so the rest of the fairies can live. But this is a world where trees feel actual pain and then they're brutally cut down. The issue at the root cause, no pun intended, of Ferngully isn't the humans but Hexus himself. And then there is Hexus, a blob of black ooze that infects everything it touches before he mutates into a huge godlike skeleton creature with flames in his chest who revels in toxicity, death, dirt, sludge and grime. Tim Curry is great, sort of too great, actually. He's clearly having the best time voicing this villain. But a villain who is, and these are genuine lyrics from the original song, horny for spewing cyanide saliva. I'm not making that up. The fact that this movie is actually a classic and its message is still so relevant today if not more so is perhaps what makes it so unsettling to rewatch. there's no doubt that a significant number of the current generation of climate activists and scientists were possibly inspired by fern gully and fern gully is still prominent in people's minds today any social media platform where you search the hashtag fern gully Show you will show you images of opulent greenery, expansive jungles, and tranquil oases. Hexus posts flooded Twitter when ex-President Trump considered appointing Scott Pruitt, the infamously anti-environmental Oklahoma Attorney General, to the Environmental Protection Agency. Ferngully continues to exist because it entertained and motivated viewers to take action to improve the world around them, serving as the dream worth keeping referred to in the film's power ballad. Ferngully also inspired each of us to take action in our own small way to help the seeds of change take root and grow. And while the conclusion was a little too neatly wrapped up, there's no denying what the movie is urging its audience to do, to take action to help the environment 
And this specific appeal is what sets it apart from nearly every other animated feature film. Before the credits start to roll, we're given a brief tribute that reads, For our children and our children's children. These children have grown up and have probably raised their own children, who may have indeed started raising their own children in the last 30 years. Meaning that this is the message that we really do need to take away, not just from Fern Gully, but from everything that we're doing. Our actions directly and indirectly harm future generations. If we can make small changes now, it will be for the benefit of their children and their children's children. It's sad in a way that it feels like the message of Fern Gully has been forgotten. 30 years later, we're still talking about environmental damage, climate change, pollution, the reliance on fossil fuels, deforestation, and the extinction of the natural world. And talking isn't enough. We need to act. Fern Gully told us that 30 years ago, and we possibly don't have another 30 years to talk about it. So let's do something. Let's plant the seed of change. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. And as I said at the start of this episode, the mere fact that you're listening to this podcast means that you are supporting this podcast. But if you do want to do something to help this podcast grow, you could leave a rating or review wherever you found it. You could tell a friend or family member about this podcast. Or you can follow me at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, Mastodon and Hive. And you can do things like like or retweet posts. That always helps as well. If you like this episode of Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, you might also like the following episodes. I'm only going to recommend a couple. The first one is an episode that I did on Aladdin, which is back in episode nine. It's not a fun episode. Back then, I was experimenting with episode types. And I ended up doing a comparison between the animated Aladdin and the live action Aladdin. I don't do episodes like that anymore. But it is a very brief discussion on the animated Aladdin, how much I love that movie. But really, the main episode that I wanted to recommend was actually episode 47, which is on the movie Princess Mononoke. There are so many comparisons between Fern Gully and Princess Mononoke. Princess Mononoke is, without a doubt, the better movie because it is Hayao Miyazaki's masterpiece, in my opinion. I think it's the greatest film he's ever done. But if you like movies like Fern Gully, I guarantee you will adore Princess Mononoke. It has the same environmental messages. It's a lot more blatant in its messaging, I think. But then a lot of the Studio Ghibli stuff, especially Miyazaki's stuff, was very environmentally focused. And so I could recommend every single Miyazaki movie that I'd ever covered on this podcast. But I feel like Princess Mononoke, if you're interested in anime, would be a great introductory movie to start with. So those are the two that I want to recommend to you. Let me know if you feel like I missed any recommendations. So the next episode, we're full on in animation season now. And so you know that I'm going to be doing some Pixar stuff. And normally I would wait. Last year, I waited till the very end of the season to do Pixar. And I was like, I don't think I can make people wait for a Pixar movie this time around. So not only are you getting a Pixar movie, pretty much the second episode of the year, you're getting a Pixar movie. You're also getting one of the best Pixar movies. And I feel like this movie, if I'm hyping it up too much, there's no way that I could hype this movie up too much because it is genuinely one of the greatest things I've ever done. The next episode is going to be on Inside Out. And the reason why I chose Inside Out over pretty much any other Pixar movie that I haven't done is that movie is very specific depiction of emotion. 
And also, very specifically, that movie's depiction of depression. Because I feel like for a family animated movie, it understands depression in a way that not many animated movies would ever dare to understand. It's also a really fun, great movie. It's beautifully animated. Join me next week as I take a real in-depth look into the mind of Verbal Diorama, where you're going to meet my joy, my sadness, and my fear, my anger, and my disgust. Because those are all emotions that we all have, even me. And just on a point as well, I've often talked about sadness on this podcast and how showing sadness is often seen as something that you don't show on podcasts. And so I want to talk about how Inside Out persuaded me that it was okay to talk about sadness. Because I've talked about sadness a lot in previous episodes. I cried many times on this podcast in the past because I was sad. And it's always been a cathartic experience. And I take what I've learned from Inside Out to understand why and how it's okay to show sadness on this podcast. But anyway, join me next week for Inside Out. It's going to be fun. It's going to be lots of joy. Lots and lots of joy. Very little sadness. Maybe a little bit of sadness, but mostly joy. But it's okay to show sadness. And it's okay to show fear and anger and disgust. But mostly it's okay to show sadness. But it mostly just be joy. Anyway, if you do want to support this podcast financially, you're under no obligation to do so, by the way. But if you do, you can sign up at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon and you can join the amazing patrons at Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sonny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Jonathan, and brand new patrons, Stu and Brett. Thank you so much, Stu and Brett, for joining Verbal Diorama's Patreon over the festive period. Honestly, the biggest Christmas surprise was to have two new patrons sign up really randomly over the festive period, but I'm so grateful to you both. And I'm not going to give patrons toxic love. I'm going to give you very non-toxic love and a lot of appreciation. You can check out my merch store at verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can get in touch with me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. My website is verbaldiorama.com and my other work is available at filmstories.co.uk. I write in the magazine. I also write articles on film stories as well. And finally... Oil and grime Poison sludge Slime beneath me, moon, slime up above. Ooh, you love my toxic love.
Hey there, classmates. Tune in to Middle Class Film Class every Monday and Wednesday for weekly movie news, streaming picks, and one deep dive review. The Batman trailer. There was a teaser. There was a trailer. Trailer one, trailer two. Final trailer? I don't know if it's the same one. How many trailers do we need? Exactly. Leave an email or a voicemail to join in the discussion. Bullshit artist! Uh, <laughs> yeah, buddy. All That's right. awesome. You're going full Danzig. That's right. I am. My, my trans yeah, has no power over me. me. <laughs> <laughs>